0: A 42-year-old male with no significant past medical history was brought to the emergency department by his wife for a change in mental status. He was complaining of auditory and visual hallucinations. He was oriented to his self but not place or time and was extremely agitated, tremulous, tachycardic, and diaphoretic. Per the wife, he had no history of substance use, but for the past two years, he was using a supplement he'd been purchasing on the internet. She was unsure if he still had any of the supplement at home, and couldn't remember the name of it. He received initial benzodiazepines with lorazepam, as well as haloperidol and olanzapine to calm his agitation. He got 17 milligrams of lorazepam in the first 18 hours, at which point he was transferred to the ICU with twitching. He ended up being intubated given more lorazepam, olanzapine, midazolam, dexmedetomidine, and propofol to manage his agitation. On hospital day 2, a phenobarbital taper was started. He continued on all of these medications until hospital day 4, when eventually baclofen was added on as well. He was extubated on hospital day 5, but demonstrated ongoing hallucinations and impulsivity despite maximum dosages of dexmedetomidine and diazepam 10 milligrams every two hours. It wasn't until hospital day 7 that the patient began answering questions appropriately and the symptoms slowly improved until on hospital day 11 the patient's mental status had improved to baseline and they were discharged on baclofen and a camprosate. What substance that you can buy on the internet can cause such a severe and protracted syndrome causing you to be intubated and hallucinating for seven days unfortunately it's one we're seeing more and more of nationally and people using this substance aren't always aware of the risks and providers encountering it aren't always aware of what it is so today we're going to dive in in the poison lab everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I am your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan, and I have a really special episode today. We have a few guests joining the show. Uh, The first guest is Dr. Matthew Stanton, a friend of the show. You might remember him from episode five, Toxicologist vs. the Internet. Uh, He's an emergency medicine pharmacist and clinical toxicologist and a good friend and colleague of mine. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dr. Stanton. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And we have a very special guest today, uh, Dr. Ben Weston. He's an emergency medicine physician and associate professor of emergency medicine. He is the director of the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. He's the chief health policy advisor for Milwaukee County. And amongst all of his accolades, he is also the co-author and fellow flagrant fentanyl falsehood fighter. Uh, one of the co-authors of the case report we published trying to dispel some fentanyl misinformation uh, of the time where I spilled a massive dose of fentanyl on myself and was perfectly fine. Uh, so thank you for joining the show today, Dr. Ben Weston.
1: That is quite an introduction. Thank you for having me.
0: Excited to be here too. Hey,
2: Ben, how you doing? Good, how are you?
0: Good. Uh, so we really have a special show today uh, for a really interesting topic. Uh, before we jump in, we just heard that case report. A little spoiler for our listeners, I guess, that was a case of a patient going through withdrawal. Uh, What do you think of of that withdrawal? You know, five days of hallucinations, intubation requiring propofol dexmedetomidine, 18 of Ativan
1: in the first day. I'm going to say that's on the more severe end, Ryan. Uh, And 18 of Ativan, I wonder if it's just an Ativan deficiency going on there.
0: (laughs) Well, we all have a little Ativan deficiency, but... So that definitely seems severe to me. Do you think a withdrawal like that could be caused by something you could hear about on a Dr. Oz show?
1: I would like to say, I hope not, but I think Dr. Oz has been focusing lately more on crudotype platters, but I think uh, in the past on his show, there were all sorts of interesting supplements. So, so I'm going to go with yes.
0: Right. It's a supplement. And really a lot of people think supplements, you know, they might help but they rarely think they can harm. And that's exactly why we're doing the episode today. So for the audience, this is going to be a different type of episode than you're used to. I've created a little audio documentary, and we're going to learn a whole lot about this topic. You already know what it is because it's in the title of this episode. And my guests today, well, they were chosen by design. Uh, you're acting as the audience. One of you, Dr. Santon's is cheating. Already knows what the substance is, and Dr. West and you volunteered to be our guinea pig and play the role that a lot of people in healthcare are going to be playing when they listen to this episode, uh, kind of hearing about this substance for the first time. So I really appreciate that you're both here to show your insights. This is a different type of episode. Normally, listeners write in guesses for the show. Um, I decided to change the format. You know, kind of in the middle of all this, but we still got some great listener guesses. So. We're, we're going to read through those, uh, and I'd love if you two could help me read the guesses. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and we'll just go in order.
3: Talk so here. If you don't have time to listen to other listener guesses due to the shortening of the human attention span, you can jump to 1547 to dive right into the fun. Oh, and if you're anything like Ryan, when you go on your phone to fast forward, try not to get sidetracked mindlessly pulling up Twitter. You're welcome. Back to the show.
0: And we'll go. So the first uh, listener I have here is named Fezzy Nation. Thanks for writing in. Uh, And they say, I think this sounds uh, like amphetamines. They can cause basically all of the complications suffered by the patient. They have been commonplace in pre-workout supplements in years gone by and different jurisdictions. A basic urinary tox screen is not reliable for amphetamines, but Obviously, I would maintain an open mind as to what the substance is, given how nonspecific all of this is. And he also says, once you find out, let me know so I can get whatever he's smoking, <laughs> which I don't think you're going to want to mess with this, Fezzy Nation. Um, so, OK, uh, Dr. Stanton, can you jump in for number three here? Dr. Ryan, my guess for this week is ergot
2: poisoning. Ergots come from a fungus that uh, parasitize grasses such as barley, rye. Here are the reasons I suspect that this patient had ergot poisoning. We all know that supplements aren't nearly as well regulated as they should be. And if this is some kind of herbal concoction, I think it's plausible that it could be from a field with infected grasses or been contaminated during processing. Ergot toxins famously are hallucinogenic. And they can cause convulsions and death in livestock. However, this patient did not report a burning sensation of the hands and feet, an ergot-related condition called St. Anthony's fire, quote-unquote. So that's a strike against it. As you might be able to tell, I am not a medical professional, just a horticultural enthusiast. And while I have no experience in toxicology, I do regularly handle what I believe is the most powerful poison known to science. I work at a skincare practice and regularly sign out deliver, deliveries of cosmetic botulinum. Thanks so much for your podcast. I don't necessarily understand the details about biochemistry, but I grew up reading Agatha Christie and other murder mysteries where poisons frequently played a starring role. And I've always taken a macabre interest and the subject, I look forward to hearing this week's solution. I
0: love that. Looks like that was from listener KB D'Angelo. So first, thanks for writing in. I wish we could talk more about ergotism because it's fantastic. Ergot comes from the claviceps fungus and it infects rye. And ergot or ergotamine was the precursor to LSD, so it can cause hallucinations Albert Hoffman invented that after he was experimenting with migraine treatments, and then it causes this really bad vasoconstrictive disease, uh, and in the 1500s when it would infect rye, it would basically cause ischemic gangrene and people's limbs would fall off. They called it St. Anthony's fire. So yeah, altered mental status that kind of fits with this. Um, I wish we could talk more about that. but. Not going to fit in with the show today. If you want to know more about ergot, I did write a blog post about this called St. Anthony's Renal Failure about vasoconstrictive renal failure from ergotamine. Um, And that's on Nefffellow or renalfellows.org. I can put a post in there. Uh, Awesome.
1: Awesome guess. All right. Dr. Weston. All right. Next up, we have M. Gibson, uh, and she guessed Datarum Stramonium, a classic guess. Uh, and for those who are not botanists or toxicologists out there, that is jimsonweed. weed. Do you want me to do the next one too here, Ryan? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So um, this is a friend from the North. This is uh, Liam Walsh. He is an emergency medicine pharmacist from New Brunswick, Canada. And he says, hey, greetings from Canada. Very interesting case and a tricky one, but I'll give it a shot. The patient's presentation of tachycardia, tremor, delirium, and seizure with a history of unknown supplement use at first led me towards serotonin toxicity. Supplements such as St. John's wort, ginseng, and 5 HTP may have serotonergic properties, but I wouldn't expect them to cause serotonin syndrome, especially of the severity described without other agents like SSRIs, uh, MAOIs, etc. But the patient was reportedly not taking any prescription medications, So uh, that led Liam to cross that off his list. So he then thought of uh, dinitrophenol. All of us are thinking dinitrophenol. Uh, It's an uncoupler of oxidative (laughs) phosphorylation uh, that sometimes is taken as a weight loss supplement. Uh, And although it's effective as a weight loss agent, for those out there uh, looking to lose weight, he says, it's therapeutic index is narrow. And overdoing it can lead to confusion, seizure, diaphoresis, all of which this guy uh, exhibited. But he'd also likely experienced severe hyperthermia with that agent. Uh, and although that wasn't mentioned, it still is a possibility. Um, but he felt like the patient's two-year history of uneventful use of the supplement made that less likely. So that led to his last train of thought, which is, interestingly, what if this isn't an overdose at all? What if the patient had been taking a substance without problem for two years, but then his supply was interrupted and he was now withdrawing? The patient's symptoms and clinical course all fit with a severe, you guessed it, GABA agonist withdrawal. Fenibut. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but we'll go with it. Fenibut is a GABA-B agonist, similar to GHB or baclofen, found in many supplements sold online and targeted at treating anxiety or improving sleep. So his final guess is that the patient was taking a Phenobut-containing supplement purchased online, which for some reason, he abruptly stopped taking, causing his described symptoms. And if this was the case, he's also guessing the outpatient treatment he received was some sort of baclofen taper.
0: That was great. Wow. And that is exactly how it's pronounced. I love. We're all thinking denetrophenol. <laughs> We, we've talked about dinitrophenol a few times on the show as well. I feel like the patient would be yellow because uh, it, it makes them pretty, pretty yellow. Dr. Sam?
2: From Ari. Uh,
0: a nice, short,
2: succinct guess of phenibut withdrawal. I like it.
0: All right. I'll jump in for number seven here. Hey there. For the gentleman who presented to the ER with confusions, tremors, and a seizure and was taking a medication purchase online, sounds like it could have been Fennibut withdrawal, a GABA-B agonist often taken for anxiolysis or as a nootropic. He could have also been withdrawing from a designer benzo like a tizolam or from GHB, GBL, or 1,4-butanediol, which becomes GHB in the body. I've seen several cases of Fennibut withdrawal, and some have required heroic doses of sedation. Baclofen, either acutely or as a taper, is also used given its GABA-B activity, but it rarely seems to add much. Other online available medications that could result in confusion, diaphoresis, and a seizure include things like dinitrophenol stimulants or cathinones or synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists. Thanks. Big fan of the show, Paul Ehlers, toxicology fellow at the Toxicon Consortium. Hey, thanks for writing in, Paul. It's hearing a lot of similar guesses here. He sounds like people who, who live in the trenches of talks and they're bringing up some of the weird and obscure, which I love. And these are the things that we tend to see. Honestly, I feel like if I didn't know what this was, I would maybe think synthetic cannabinoids as well, because we see, or, uh, or synthetic cannabinoids because we see people in the ICU for days on those sometimes. Um, and unfortunately we do have one more guest, but I think we're running out of time. This one is from, uh, Patrick Rose, a pharmacist from Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse, New York, uh, and he really provides a really detailed answer, which I, I have to give him a lot of credit for, but I'm not sure we have time to read through it all right now. He suggests things like uh, various nootropics that can cause stimulation like citicoline or paracetam. Uh, we've talked about paracetam before. It's actually a GABA antagonist, interestingly. But then he hones in on using a supplement, maybe withdrawing, talks about GHB, Kratom, and Fennibut, and says because it's not a scheduled substance that he thinks this is probably Fennibut, and I think that's a great guess. Uh, Thank you for writing in, Patrick. Sorry we couldn't get through the entire thing. So, Matt,
1: do you want to do the big reveal of what we're talking about today?
0: Fennibut withdrawal.
1: You know, right before we even started, I, I knew it was going to be about Butt, so uh, I'm glad that, that it turned out to be what I thought, <laughs> uh, and I was, I was
0: vindicated, so. <laughs> okay. We are talking about Butt today, and I, all right, before we go further, I got I to gotta choose our listener winner of the week, and we're going to be a little more egalitarian this time. I used to choose it based on how much I liked an answer, but anyone who wrote in, you got a shot at winning today, so. Uh, our listener winner is going to be random number generator witnessed by my three guests. Number five, which is, hey, Liam Walsh. Oh, I'm pretty sure he's won before. Well, congratulations. You can get some more stickers. Just <laughs> I already have your address, I think, so I'll send them out. All right. So let's get into the nitty gritty. The whole purpose of this show uh, is to talk about Finny and I think we're really all going to learn a lot today. I'm really excited for everyone listening because this is kind of a new and emerging problem. So Dr. Weston, before today, have you heard of butt? I must admit I have not heard of FennyButt before today. That's okay, nobody else has either. Let me play you a little clip. Okay, what's your occupation and how long have you been doing it? Emergency medicine physician, I've been doing this for about eight years.
4: I'm a pharmacist, I work in the emergency room and the ICU. I've been doing it for seven years.
1: Uh, my occupation is emergency department physician, and I've been doing that in an attending capacity for four years.
4: I'm a nurse, and I've been a nurse for four years. The emergency department.
1: Emergency physician. 10, 12 years, 10. somewhere in there, long
4: time. Registered nurse for five years. I am an emergency medicine resident, and this is my third year of residency.
0: If a patient came in and told you they were taking butt. Would that be a substance that you're familiar with? Uh, maybe something
1: with fentanyl and... I don't know. <laughs> I have um, no idea. Have you heard of Fennibut before? No, I, have, I haven't.
2: No, I wish I had.
0: <laughs> that sounds vaguely familiar, but uh, no, not really. Um,
5: no.
0: No. What the f*** is <laughs> No. What is it? Have you ever had any experience with patients who are using fentanyl?
4: No, I
0: personally have not, but I've heard about it on my toxicology rotation. Doesn't. So you heard about Fennibut, okay. I love it. Okay, this is the first one. This is the first one. <laughs> so, as you can hear, most people in healthcare don't know what this substance is yet, but we can change that. So let's dive in and give people some background on just what exactly this drug is. Fennibut is a sedative drug that works on a receptor called GABA-B. We'll talk more about that later. It was first developed in 1963 in St. Petersburg, Russia. The drug was thought to have both sedating effects as well as cognitive enhancing effects, and it was being tested on adolescents with psychiatric disorders. It seemed to work pretty well, and in Russia, it was approved under the names Anvifen, Fenibut, and Nuofen. It's sort of famous as a Russian cosmonaut drug. The Soviet cosmonauts had it added to their space bags to take advantage of the calming and apparently mentally stimulating effects. And today, it's known as a sleep aid, a mood enhancer, an exercise recovery booster, and even a smart drug, or nootropic, the kind of drug you would hear about on a Joe Rogan podcast. And it's readily available on tons of e-commerce sites. You can go to any number of websites and find Fennybutt marketed for anxiety, sleep, mood enhancement, and is completely legal to purchase and own, though it's not an FDA-approved drug. Its reputation and unfettered access may be leading to increased use throughout the United States. According to a paper published in the CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, from 2009 to 2019, US poison centers received 1,300 calls for bud exposures. But over 95% of the calls occurred in the four-year period from 2015 to 2019, representing a massive increase in trajectory. While the overall numbers nationally appear lower compared to other drugs such as opioids riddling the nation, the trajectory is concerning. And clearly, I'm not the only one worried. I reached out to the authors of the paper showing increasing fentanyl exposures nationally to find out why they did it. Here's Dr. Erica Leibelt. She's the associate medical director of the Arkansas Poison and Drug Information Center and a professor of pediatrics and clinical pharmacy.
5: Our calls were increasing at the poison center. And again, nobody knew about this. And I didn't know a lot about it. And so Janessa, being a well-known epidemiologist at Washington State,
0: That's Dr. Janessa Graves, the first author of this study.
5: I started talking to her about the national poison data system. Uh, She actually got the study off the ground and I got the numbers. And again, I don't think what we saw was so surprising to us. The poison center is many times the first place where these emerging New drugs and substances come about, and people hear about them.
0: So they took on this study because they were seeing increasing calls, but we're not exactly sure why. Here's Dr. Janessa Graves on why she thinks we might be seeing increased calls related to Fentanyl.
5: I think that you know part of it is just spread of information, and people are becoming more aware of it existing, and so they're trying things out outside of the
3: healthcare system.
5: It's it's a response to our broken healthcare system too, with not enough access to mental health services. And just like uh, Janessa said, it's not illegal, it's accessible and people can self-medicate. And perhaps they think of this as a way to do it that may be safer.
0: People looking for safe alternatives that don't have to go through the hassle of the healthcare system, things they can buy right online. That's the exact story of what happened to Elliot. I'll introduce him now. He was a regular Butt user who has been gracious enough to share his story of recovery with us. He was using seven to nine grams per day before he was able to finally stop.
6: Okay, so I would say I heard about Fennebut like most people on the uh, most people that start taking it do, which is through the internet, um, through second like secondhand kind of experiences with it, like what are the effects, what are the downsides. Um, and I would, I, I started taking it because I was actually looking for an alternative to some of the ADHD stimulants I was taking before. So I would, you know, go on Reddit in order to go on the internet, try to do my own kind of research. And that's where I kind of found it. Uh, In hindsight, I listened to the experiences, kind of had a bias, the experiences that were uh, mostly positive and not the negatives.
0: What was your perception of the potential risks of using Butt when you started?
6: Not many. because. I think for the same reason you're doing this podcast, there wasn't really much uh, like perspectives from like doctors or, or like, you know, research or anything like that. So I, I ended up just kind of like learning from user reports.
0: Were you aware of the potential for dependence when you started? Um, I,
6: yeah, I would say I had it in the back of my head. But um, though at the time I was thinking, well, you know, maybe the benefits outweigh the risks.
0: Are you surprised to hear, Dr. Weston, that poison centers kind of were the first place to pick up on this?
1: No, not necessarily. I think poison centers often are sort of the tip of the spear uh, with this sort of stuff. They they are the first to see um, a lot of new substances on the market, a lot of new substances that are becoming uh, fads. And I'll tell you with my experience in the EMS system and emergency medicine, I think all three of those areas tend to be sort of the front door for for new trends and new, uh, issues with health in the community. So, uh, Matt, when was the first time you
0: encountered Fenny, but I know for me, it was probably two or three years ago. And I was, when I saw it, I was like, what, I might've heard about it at a conference once, but you know, it was not on my radar until a few years ago.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, it was, uh, I think it might've been, it was probably pre 2020. So maybe, Yeah, maybe about three to four years ago.
0: You know, people are using Fennibut for a lot of different reasons, it seems. It's marketed for almost everything. I think some are also maybe using it to self-medicate and treat things like withdrawal from other substances. Here's Dr. Dan McCabe, the medical director of the University of Iowa Medical Toxicology Division and the associate medical director of the Iowa Poison Control Center. He wrote the largest case series to date, of fenny exposures from his time in minnesota here's how he first encountered the substance
4: so where i trained up in minnesota we i actually worked in the critical access hospitals in western wisconsin it was strange there's like these detox centers next to these really small critical access hospitals during fellowship i would just start asking these people that just you know left detox they needed whatever other you know basic home medications and i ask them hey what all do you t- take and I feel like it was common. I was hearing two things come up repeatedly. People were using Etizolam and they were getting fed of it. And I it's like, wait, what is this?
0: <laughs> so Etizolam for the listeners, that's a designer benzodiazepine, but it does seem like users were potentially taking this drug, at least alongside other substances, or sometimes as a replacement for some substances like alcohol. There's a lot of discussion on the boards about using Fennibut as a replacement for alcohol to get the same amount of social ease and relaxation that somebody might get after having a cocktail. And others using it as an adjunct pharmacotherapy to get off other substances like kratom, opioids, or benzodiazepines without having to seek help through healthcare.
5: I think a lot of this does stem from some degree of discomfort with the healthcare system because people are clearly self-medicating, right? They're obtaining a medication or a substance online most often, circumventing the healthcare system where they could get other care services or counseling or whatnot what they need. Um, And then when they go through any sort of withdrawal or have issues with it, they're not necessarily going straight to the ED. They're going to go to an internet forum. They're going to call the
4: poison center.
0: So, I mean, do you think we're hearing about Every fennibut case that that's going on.
2: No, we are we. You know, like a lot of things that, um, you know, when people end up self-medicating, it's obviously underreported. Um, and whether that whether that hides as a not being familiar with fennibut or a patient not admitting to using it and then going down a a differ a different differential diagnosis route. Uh, you know because I mean maybe it could be alcohol withdrawal, right And you know some of these right. patients may use
0: use alcohol too. So uh, here's let me just give you some stats here. There's 26 published case reports of Feny Butt there's 1,300 calls to poison centers in, in the grand scheme of the you know opioid epidemic. That's a small number obviously, but you know that trajectory is a little concerning. So there's there's about 1,400 cases that we've kind of seen. There are 10,000 people subscribed to the quitting fenibut subreddit.
1: And, and I'll tell you from my Amazon search here, every fenibut supplement has about 2,000 reviews each. So <laughs> so I think uh there's probably a lot more out there. But I think with supplements like this, a lot of times people feel that they're natural and they're safe and you know prescription drugs are what you have to be careful with. The supplements are safe and you know in this case and many others show that that's not not the case. they're exactly like you said,
0: the availability sometimes puts a guise of safety on it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is safer or ineffective. Uh, it just means it's not regulated. And I think just as uh, Dr. Graves and McCabe kind of brought up, there might be an, a part of, you know, healthcare avoidance. It might be one of the reasons why we aren't learning as much about it. So uh, here's Elliot on what he said about people seeking healthcare treatment for actually managing their fentanyl butt dependence.
6: And, again, the reason why you're doing this podcast, too, and I'm glad you are, is because a lot of people are afraid of going to, like, the medical community because a lot of the time they don't know what it is. And it was scary because I didn't know what my doctor was going to do, and I thought I was going to be, like, kind of left to sink or swim. And, you know, just to reiterate, I think it's it's good that you guys are trying to learn more because a lot of people, people are just afraid to go to the doctor because they don't know what to do. And they're afraid that they don't – that they're not going to take it seriously.
0: So at least some fentanylbite users appear to be concerned about the toxicity or potential withdrawal but have hesitancies with approaching healthcare due to the perception that maybe they won't be taken seriously as it's a legally available supplement or maybe the provider doesn't know what it is. I think that's really one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this episode. Just get the word out to healthcare and users about the risk. And you know, it would terrify me that somebody would have to go through a withdrawal, like we just talked about in that case report on their own. I mean, eventually, they would wind up in healthcare, but I think it would be
1: from serious symptoms that brought them there. Right, right. And they may not necessarily seek out healthcare, because again, they they say, you know, I'm healthy, I'm not on any prescription medications. Exactly. So hopefully, this will bring a little awareness to
0: this this potential problem with this supplement. So let's talk about exactly how it causes these effects. We're going to jump into the mechanism segment. Phenibut has a very interesting mechanism. Phenibut is a GABA-B receptor agonist. There's two types of GABA receptors in the brain, maybe more, but two that we really care about, GABA-A and GABA-B. Both receptors cause sedation. GABA, the neurotransmitter, is one of our primary inhibitory neurotransmitters in the brain. GABA-A is located all over the brain and it sits on chloride channels. When a drug stimulates GABA-A, it enhances chloride flow into the cell, making it more negative and unlikely to depolarize. This shuts down communications between neurotransmitters and sedates the activity of the brain. There are a lot of drugs that stimulate GABA-A. Alcohol, alprazolam, barbiturates. So, anytime someone pops a zany or has an afterwork beverage, they're actually stimulating GABA A receptors and letting more chloride into their neurons. Now, if you stimulate those receptors too much, your body begins to downregulate the receptors and get rid of some. This means you need more drug to make the few remaining receptors do the same amount of work over time. That's the physiologic basis of dependence. And then when you remove the drug, your few remaining receptors can't lift the load anymore. Now you have less receptors than you did in the first place and no drugs to make those receptors work harder. Instead of sedation, we're actually now in a hyper-excitable state. This is the physiologic basis of withdrawal. We are super familiar with managing GABA-A withdrawal because humans have been drinking alcohol and popping Xanny bars or barbiturates for a long time. So there's a lot of well-developed treatment protocols that healthcare providers can use when they encounter someone in GABA-A withdrawal. But when it comes to GABA-B, it's sort of a different story. First, Instead of being found everywhere in the brain like GABA-A, GABA-B is only found on inhibitory tracks in the brain. Also, the receptor is different. GABA-A works on ion channels. You turn it on and it helps ions go in the cell. GABA-B is what we call a G-coupled protein receptor. It uses more complex second messenger systems to exert its effect. The overall effect is usually to increase potassium leaving the cell or prevent calcium from entering the cell. Either way, it's less positive ions in the cell, and the cell becomes more negative. Okay, so GABA-A gets me more negative. GABA-B gets me more negative by a different pathway. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. What does it matter? Well, GABA-A and GABA-B withdrawal do have some overlap in their clinical syndromes. We see diaphoresis, tremor, spasticity, tachycardia, hallucination, but GABA-B withdrawal does seem to have the potential for more severe symptoms and a more protracted time course. You rarely hear about alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal being intubated for multiple days and still hallucinating seven days later. A compounding problem is we're just not as familiar with managing GABA-B withdrawal. We only have two GABA-B stimulating drugs in the United States, GHB and Baclofen, and now Fennibuds. Case reports of GHB withdrawal frequently document heroic levels of benzodiazepines, barbiturates, and multimodal drug therapies to manage the agitation. Baclofen withdrawal, which is usually seen when an intrathecal pump of baclofen malfunctions, is a withdrawal syndrome that makes most providers pretty nervous due to the severity of the symptoms that can be present. And there have been case reports of death from intrathecal baclofen withdrawal. And now we have Fennibut. Another agent capable of causing severe and protracted withdrawal, requiring monumental doses of sedatives to truly control the agitation. And unfortunately for all of these GABA B agents, we just don't have the same wealth of experience in withdrawal as we do with alcohol or benzodiazepines. So many questions remain unanswered in terms of how to best manage them. For for both of you, what's your comfort level with this, you know, managing an alcohol withdrawal versus a baclofen withdrawal?
1: I think we just see alcohol withdrawal so much more, the comfort so much higher. Um, I mean, baclofen withdrawal, they come in, they happen, but but it's not a daily sort of occurrence like alcohol withdrawal.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's, it, yeah, alcohol withdrawal is just, uh, you know, much more common. Um, you know, baclofen withdrawal, yeah, I you know, ba- patients taking baclofen orally um, is much less common. I've seen more Cases of like a intrathecal baclofen withdrawal pump malfunction. That's, that's usually where, you know, severe baclofen withdrawal comes in from,
1: from the cases right. that I've seen. And we, I, see- I think those are the only cases I've seen. It's less familiar. And anytime you have something less familiar, you know, it gets you on your toes a little more. And so Matt, GABA-B, that's all we're dealing with, right?
2: Well, as, <laughs> as much as we would like to believe that these drugs are super specific for only one receptor, um, you know. It just, just, uh, just looking at the mechanisms of of phenibut and and baclofen and GABA, and, you know, you would have to imagine that it hits it hits GABA A receptors,
0: right? So while we think it's GABA B, there's probably a few other pathways involved. Here's Dr. McCabe again.
4: We're missing something, and the English-written papers say it's a GABA B agonist and kind of just leave it at that. But if you go to the Russian literature, because the Russians were the ones that came up with this, some of the their preclinical data actually they'll talk about, uh, beside it being a GABA B, they'll talk about GABA A, they'll talk about voltage-dependent calcium channels, they'll talk about a lot of different effects that we that doesn't really show up in the in the English literature very much at all.
0: So it does seem, you know, just like you said, I think there are multiple mechanisms involved here and, you know, for GABA-A withdrawal, hey, benzos, you know, you're withdrawing from alcohol. Here's another gaba agonist. We kind of think the same thing for Fennibut because we just think, hey, it's GABA-B, but it probably has multi-modal effects and that'll be kind of a theme here. Let's just dive into uh, clinical presentation. here. When it comes to the clinical presentation of a Fennibut patient, there are two presentations to manage. The first are the effects of acute use. Patients experience all sorts of effects from using Fennibut. Initially, they often experience sedation, social relaxation, and euphoria, but eventually dependence builds. Euphoria gives way to agitation, insomnia, depression, and anxiety. Let's hear from Elliot about how his use progressed.
6: Uh, so when I first started using it, I was only taking it once a week. I feel so great over time. You get trapped in that euphoric feeling and then progressed it twice a week. And I was like, well, why can't I just feel like this all the time? And I was sort of just kind of pushing off. You know, there's probably some real risks to this I'm using every day. So I just ended up taking it more and more and more which, of course, in hindsight, didn't work out so well. You know, you stop feeling euphoria after a while if you just depended on it at that
0: point. And as dependence builds, side effects build alongside it. In the case report that we reviewed today, the patient began taking one gram per day. After six months, they were taking 8 to 12 grams per day. And upon waking, would immediately experience shaking and anxiety until they took an additional dose of phenibut. They also developed insomnia. This patient continued to use Fennibut for two more years, up to 28 grams per day. Immediately upon waking, they would have auditory hallucinations, often accompanied by transient periods of confusion, difficulty speaking, and inability to perform tasks, such as opening a car door. These symptoms would no longer be relieved by taking more Fennibut and could persist for up to 24 hours. They eventually resulted in two motor vehicle accidents and the patient was actually worked up for seizures by neurology. So it seems as people progress with their use, they can develop worsening symptoms, sometimes pro-excitatory. Whether that's from a direct drug effect or from withdrawal symptoms developing as the drug wears off faster and faster while dependence builds, we don't really know. But these symptoms are often what leads users to seek care.
6: I'm gonna say this is a monster of a drug, if you're especially dependent on it, where towards the end of my addiction, I would say the two worst things about it, and I mean, I say this with emotion, because it was probably one of the worst times of my life was the, the insomnia, the lack of sleep. So I I would have to redose two or three times a day, um, just so I could attempt to get any sort of good sleep. And when it was, when I was able to sleep, it wasn't restful REM sleep. Um, It was like one or three hours of really like kind of sort of crappy sleep where I didn't feel rest at all and I worked a manual labor job so I was barely functioning and when I was sort of up all night with with the Fennibit induced insomnia it was the anxiety and the depression. Um, My self esteem took a dive. Um, I had sexual side effects that I'm not too afraid to talk about I had, I had trouble achieving an erection naturally anymore and that was a major thing that's that's that uh symptoms kind of talked about people will say they lost uh ability to um have an erection and at that point getting one to two hours of sleep a night and and losing that ability i was like it's it's time to
0: try to quit so as patients progress with their use they tend to experience progressively worsening symptoms and it can become severe such as auditory hallucinations or impaired executive function for a long time, refractory to redosing the Phenibut. There's actually a lot of discussion on these internet forums about things called glutamate surges that Phenibut can cause, where it may have both a sedative and pro-excitatory effect, but a lot still needs to be learned about. Here's Dr. Dan McCabe again on the clinical effects he saw in his case series.
4: Here's Phenibut can cause a wide variety of clinical effects. Um, in our case series, we found a significant number of patients had co but for the patients that only reported Fenibit, there were both stimulatory and sedative effects that were commonly seen in these patients um, tachycardia, bradycardia, hallucinations or insomnia, GI symptoms, diaphoresis. But also, additionally, over 10% of our, case, uh, of our patients actually verbalized that they were feeling, they were experiencing withdrawal from Fenibit by the time that they ended up at the hospital or by the time they called the poison center themselves.
0: And there's the other edge of the Fennibut double-edged sword. It's not just the acute effects of toxicity that we have to deal with, which appear to be both sedating and stimulating, but we also have to deal with the potential for withdrawal. Coming off of Fennibut can be the most difficult journey for patients, the acute withdrawal and the post-acute withdrawal. Here's how Elliot felt as he was stopping butt with the assistance of Baclofen, a therapy we'll talk about in just a moment
6: three or four weeks, and the last week was one of the worst. don't know how many hours I got of sleep that week, but it was minimal. It was just the worst depression and anxiety.
0: We're actually lucky when we run into a patient who comes into healthcare seeking to stop Fennybutt because they're experiencing acute effects from use. More often, we're identifying patients who are showing up in acute withdrawal because they've had to stop using or ran out of their supply. And this can be severe. We conducted a review on the 26 published cases of Fennibut withdrawal. 34% required ICU admission, 27% were intubated, and the rate of seizures was 15%. The clinical effects we see in Fennibut withdrawal are similar to severe GABA withdrawal, autonomic dysfunction. We see tachycardia, diaphoresis, tremor, spasticity, coupled with neuropsychiatric conditions like anxiety, insomnia, auditory and visual hallucinations, and complete disorientation. Additionally, 40% of published cases experienced some form of delayed decompensation after presentation. That means after the first 24 hours from reaching healthcare, they had worsened neuropsychiatric or motor symptoms. So frequently, what you're seeing at bedside is not the end of the story. Things are going to progress. So it seems they we've got two really syndromes that we have to manage in these patients. One is the acute toxicity, which is going to have some overlapping syndromes with withdrawal. And then the second is the withdrawal. What do you think about those rates of intubation and ICU admission?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty dramatic. I uh, So I deleted the funny button from my, my Amazon card. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting hearing the story about that guy uh, earlier that he was worked up for, you know, he said he went in and neurology worked him up for seizures and, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you just wonder how that discussion went. I mean, he was taking probably an entire bottle of about every day. Um, and, and somehow that presumably didn't show up as a red flag, uh, in his medical assessment. So they went down a different route, um, of an epilepsy workup. So, uh, it just goes to show that supplements often get missed. Uh, and the significance of supplements often get missed even if you're taking a bottle uh, a day of something
0: and actually it, that case report notes that fenibut use was noted in his history in an old HPI not documented anywhere within his actual history so
1: it, yeah I mean, it, a lot of people it, hear it and and I've been guilty of this and you hear about supplement A or supplement B and kind of shrugging side I don't I don't know what to do with that uh, and you focus on the stuff you're more familiar with but this this goes to show that uh, you got to think through that
0: and, you know, I think the high rates of intubation and and ICU admission, part of it might be comfort, just like you said, and people are less familiar with this. And uh, there's probably some publication bias in here that I'm sure there's people who are at home who have any tapered off any but by themselves, which, uh, you know, it, I would I really from what I'm hearing, I really wish everyone would, had at least the support of a healthcare, you know provider to, to help them manage that, because it seems like a tough syndrome to get through. So let's dive into how we can actually manage the patient's toxicity and withdrawal. Treatment of Fenny Butt withdrawal can be really difficult for two reasons. First, most providers don't know about it and it makes people worried about seeking care. Take Elliot, for example.
6: And again, the reason why you're doing this podcast too, and I'm glad you are, is because a lot of people are afraid of going to like the medical community because a lot of the time they don't know what it is and they won't listen about the uh um hopefully i'm pronouncing this right the baclofen um luckily my gp was one of the good ones where she i showed her that pubmed study and she was like well give me a couple of days to research it and she was like well why don't you try tapering it off now and i'll look into it eventually she got back to me
0: so people are worried that they won't be taken seriously because they're taking a supplement they bought online while most healthcare workers realize that over-the-counter supplements and nootropics frequently contain contaminants that can be responsible for health effects, rarely do we really consider their pharmacologic effects because they're not FDA-regulated drugs. But in this case, it's very important. But even if you do know about Fennybutt, we have really limited experience in managing it. One commonly toted treatment is baclofen, as you heard Elliot mention. Baclofen is a GABA-B agonist, so it has some biologic plausibility. They're in GABA-B withdrawal, so let's give them a GABA-B agent like baclofen, just like how we give benzodiazepines to people in alcohol withdrawal. In 46% of the published case reports of Fennibut withdrawal, baclofen was reported to be used. But then the problem becomes, How do you use it? The starting doses of those patients that were put on baclofen ranged from 10 to 25 milligrams four times a day. And a third of those patients reached doses of greater than 90 milligrams, many up to 130 milligrams per day. These are whopping doses of baclofen that most providers are uncomfortable with. Not to mention, the duration of treatment ranged anywhere from one week to a full year. So not only do we not know really how well baclofen works, we don't really know the best way to use it if it does work. Here's what Elliot said about his experience with baclofen.
6: It didn't really help the symptoms as much as I thought it would, as quickly as I thought it would, but eventually when the withdrawal symptoms subsided, I just stopped taking the baclofen. And eventually I was just able to kind of like throw it all out and I was was good from that point on.
0: So what do you think, Matt, back within the silver bullet?
2: Well, as much as I would like to think that it is, um, it, it, it's not from my experience managing some of these cases and then you know, and users have uh, have kind of confirmed that that anecdote. I um, feel like we're going to have to run down a, a, uh, a plethora of medications probably to, in order to manage some of this stuff.
0: And I, I think one of the problems you run into is, yeah, we have all sorts of drugs to manage acute agitation, which is at the end of the day, what the withdrawal is going to look like. We don't necessarily have a great idea of how to manage this long-term. And because there are so few clearly defined options, people quickly jump to baclofen, yet it has not um, really been evaluated. Not that it's bad to use, but there's a lot of clinical conundrums when it comes to managing this disease state. Let's hear from uh, Dr. Leibelt on how what her experience has been.
5: I think this is a very very challenging substance many of the signs and symptoms that we see reported from use you can also see uh, with withdrawal it can be very challenging because i think the presence of comorbid medical and psychiatric conditions as well as other substance use disorders i think also has an impact on treatment of withdrawal. and But the typical withdrawal is very similar to other GABA agonist withdrawal um, that we see with benzodiazepines, uh, baclofen, and ethanol. You know, the, the anxiety, the insomnia, the anger, the uh, irritability, agitation, and sometimes hallucinations. Acutely It's kind of always easy because, oh, I can give benzodiazepines. We have other medications like Presidex, you know, that can treat the agitation and that works. How do you address the long term? And certainly do you put them on long term benzodiazepine if they already have a substance use disorder and the risk of that? From a pharmacological perspective, baclofen makes sense. And there are several case reports in the literature, as I'm sure you're aware of using baclofen and doing baclofen tapers, um, but also there's been you know, some postulation that uh, gabapentin or pregabalin may work because of some of Benny Bud's other mechanisms of action. Um, but I think this becomes very, very challenging but I think it's like many withdrawal syndromes. We need to try and see what happens.
0: Oh, it's sort of just try something and see if it works, and titrate therapy from there.
1: You know, I think when we think about medicine, we always think about evidence-based medicine, which of course is what we all want to practice. Um, but there's so many areas of medicine uh, that we don't talk about quite as much. It doesn't have uh, as much evidence to it. A lot of the stuff we do in the emergency department in the hospital is based on case reports or based on a small study from 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, And supplements open up a a whole new uh, can of worms with that lack of of evidence. And so, you know, we'll we'll treat these with what we have and and what we're familiar with. But when you just have a handful of case reports, uh, it's hard to know what to do. So you always want to do what's best for the patient, but sometimes uh, there's just not that much evidence
4: to guide you.
0: Here's Dan McCabe on his thoughts.
4: We don't really know how the withdrawal is happening, but my biggest concern with these patients, once you get past the first couple hours, my biggest concern after that is the withdrawal effects. There's something really bizarre about that, that withdrawal is tricky because you don't really know what to expect. It doesn't seem like one agent works great, and it seems like they're kind of all over the map. If people want to use I'm fine with it i just think there's probably something else we should be doing too we don't have any good data to show any specific treatment that's superior to others so it's kind of a multimodal approach benzodiazepines uh, gabapentin maybe uh, maybe baclofen but essentially it's kind of using multimodal and expect kind of a prolonged course of withdrawal and treat what you see
0: A multimodal therapy plan is probably going to be needed for most patients experiencing Fennibut withdrawal. In the published cases, 95% needed multiple pharmacotherapy options. In my limited clinical experience in managing these patients, I've found it's valuable to treat it much like other severe GABA withdrawals, grade the severity of their withdrawal, and use aggressive initial dosing to try to gain symptomatic control, whether that's with GABA-A and GABA-B agents or GABA-A alone. And using adjunctive therapies like alpha-2 agonists, anticholinergic sleep aids, anything you might need to manage other symptoms. Well, this type of grading of withdrawal severity and treating works well for well-established withdrawals like alcohol. We do have some problems with funny We don't even really know how to grade the withdrawal. Maybe a good future step would be to do a retrospective review of butt withdrawal cases and look for symptoms that are associated with more severe outcomes like ICU admission or intubation to help develop a severity prognostic score and gauge our starting doses of initial treatments. But that's all in the future. For now, it seems like almost any strategy can work. If you check the show notes, you could see the compiled table of every published case report of fentanyl withdrawal. It talks about the different therapies that they used, whether they used GABA-B agents or multimodal therapies. It's from the systematic review that we're working on. And there's also a potential schema for managing withdrawal. It's just a visual flowchart for a theoretical framework, where you assess a patient's severity of withdrawal, co-ingestions, and co-withdrawals, and make a determination of their withdrawal severity based off the most severe autonomic dysfunction that's present. Then you initiate GABA-A and GABA-B therapies to get symptomatic control at doses determined by the severity of their withdrawal. Titrate them to the most appropriate doses, and then come up with a maintenance plan and taper. But I want to highlight here, this is not tested, nor is it evidence-based, not even recommending it as treatment, more as a starter point for stimulating discussion on how we treat these patients based on similar treatment strategies that have been used in case reports. There could be many ways to address this. So for now, treat them until they get better. There's many ways to do it, but recognize it could take a while for them to improve, and you might need a variety of drugs. And maybe think about calling someone who's managed Fenny Butt withdrawal before. Right now, you can usually find those people at a poison center, and they're available 24 hours a day at 1-800-222-1222. You know... There are a lot more questions than answers here, but I'm not sure it's in the acute phase of withdrawal. We know how to manage acute symptoms in the emergency department. Dr. Wesson, I mean, would you feel comfortable if some of these patients presented, you don't necessarily know what they're taking, but
1: you're seeing these symptoms? Remember, right. I mean, we, we talk about supportive measures. I mean, you know, a lot of times that's all you can do is supportive measures. So you manage their airway. Are they, you know, are they able to protect their airway? No. Well, you intubate them. You manage their tack cardio with fluids or with medications, you, you know, get an EKG and make sure their heart isn't strained. You manage their agitation with benzos and, you know, you go through the various steps. Even if you don't know what's going on, uh, you do the, the supportive reactive treatments to stabilize that patient. Uh, and a lot of times that's what emergency medicine is, is, is that stabilization without necessarily knowing, you know, what is the ultimate cause. Hopefully you figure it out before they leave your emergency department, but sometimes you don't sometimes you stabilize that patient, you send them to the floor, you send them to the ICU uh, and and the diagnosis, uh, the cause of, of that initial condition is figured out later. Um, and so I, I would imagine in a case like this, um, even after hearing this podcast, to be honest, in a case like this, it may not be front of mind uh, what's going on here. So you do your best to do supportive care. You stabilize that patient in the moment uh, and then you, you, you ship them off and, and give them to another team to keep watching them and, and going through their differential and figuring out what's going on.
2: Well, I think the, you know, I, I think the toxicity feels like it's more comfortable, you know, an acute toxicity would feel like it's more comfortable to treat. It would just feel more easily managed to me. Um, as far as withdrawal, I a hundred percent agree that I am ready to use multiple drugs and generally starting with uh, a benzodiazepine um, and, and, perhaps baclofen. But I think you brought up a really good point of, you don't know how exactly to to grade their withdrawal. So I I kind of, you know, associated similar with alcohol withdrawal, you you have someone that takes a certain dose of, of ethanol for some period of time, and you figure out when their last dose is. And whenever that last dose of ethanol was, how many hours have passed and what are their symptoms at that time kind of g- can give you a time frame, or, or give you an idea of how severe their withdrawal is going to be, right? If they're already hallucinating and agitated and it's been six hours, you know that this patient's going to have a severe withdrawal over the next 24 hours um, versus if it's already been 24 hours and they're just a little tremulous and, and anxious and, you know, there's some insomnia you know, that, that patient might not experience a, a severe withdrawal. So these spectrums of how the withdrawal is going to be, I think, is a, is a, a, a tough part on what we don't know yet. My only other thought for treatment, for, for something like this, where which I don't have really high hopes about this thought either, but there is another GABA-B agonist available, uh, and that's sodium oxabate, uh, which is under the brand Xyrum. Um, uh, but again, it's kind of a, a a left field kind of thought around you know maybe if if, if someone really has a has a thirst for research uh, clinical research in this area, you know besides baclofen and you know we don't know which dose of baclofen is is appropriate for you know the withdrawal treatments but uh, I don't know sodium oxybate maybe is it maybe is another option out there it's just not used uh, used as widely
0: now doesn't that become ghb
2: yeah yeah it's a it's a ghb analog essentially i
0: think we would yeah and it's a good thought i think people might shy away from it due to the potential scheduled status of it but yeah absolutely. yeah it
2: makes baclofen a little easier I, i think one piece that should still be said here um it's not really relate you know it's Uh, thinking about, you know, from a patient perspective, which you're there, feels like there's still stigma out there around some using some of these substances. Um, You know, we talk about a lot with the, with with opioid use disorder, but there's a lot of other use disorders out there that we need to be cognizant about as a healthcare profession.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I think it's so easy with the scale of the other drug-related harms that are going on to forget about some of these, but they're still out there, and they still weren't as much attention. I I think I remember a quote: uh, "When it comes to caring about people, there are no large or small problems. For issues concerning the treatment of people, all problems are the same." So I think this is a great step forward on our little soapbox here to try to do whatever good we can, regardless of the size of the problem. Because to some people, this is a huge problem. Well, thank you so much for joining the show, Doctor Weston. I really appreciate it. I, I, I've been thank you for being our inaugural guinea pig in this experiment. Uh, yeah, thanks for
1: having me. This is this is fun.
0: And Doctor Sand, thank you so much for being a repeat guest. Always great to have you on the show.
2: Well, I think this is a great episode uh, and a great format for, uh, for, especially for something where, you know, the, most of the conversation is about questions. Uh, instead of answers, so I, I think it's a, uh, I think this is a good service, and I hope I hope health professionals are able to to listen to this, and if patients um, that maybe use fentanyl are able to listen, I think it might give a, give some other insights.
0: We'll end the show with some closing remarks from our guest Dr. Liebelt McCabe and our guest Elliot, who we really want to thank for sharing his experience with going through fentanyl dependence and recovery. It's hearing experiences from those who are directly impacted that help inform us as healthcare workers and be better able to care for all patients.
5: Your question is so relevant and so compelling about, it's very challenging.
4: I don't think anyone's an expert in this so none of us are experts until we're 20 years into this uh and we all we have real data I, I hope someone can figure it out soon because even though it's a small problem overall the numbers are increasing and it's easily available people
6: might get mad at me for doing this
4: because uh people are going to be like well you're kind of blowing up
6: the whole community or whatever and they're going to say well this is going to lead to or this is part of it's it going to lead to being legal but i just want to let people know the real real risk and yeah, I that I went overboard with it, and maybe I blame myself. I take responsibility for it, but um, it, it's some serious stuff, guys. And please, like, don't screw around with it, because, like I said, I couldn't sleep, and at that point, I didn't even feel like a person. It just, and this could happen to anyone, even before you even know it.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. Here's a quick summary of everything we talked about today. Fennybutt is a widely available B agonist that was developed in Russia, but is available for purchase here in the United States from a number of internet vendors, and it's completely legal to own. Users take Fennibut as a nootropic or supplement, and we've seen a large increase in exposures reported to U.S. Poison Centers since 2015. While the overall numbers of Fennibut toxicity remain low compared to other drugs, we don't know if this trend is going to increase. Additionally, we are likely not seeing the majority of cases of Fennibut use, toxicity, or acute withdrawal for many reasons. Lack of awareness that the drug has potential risks might keep people from seeking healthcare, or the perception that a healthcare provider might not be aware of the substance and will dismiss it. If any, but toxicity can have diverse presentations, and some symptoms of acute use overlap with withdrawal. Compounding the issue of withdrawal is provider unfamiliarity with the drug and with the withdrawal states. Patients can present with a range of symptoms, Everything from hallucinating in the ICU for seven days to tapering off any butt on your own with instructions you found on the internet. For now, we manage the acute withdrawal with supportive cares and symptomatic therapies similar to how we would manage a GABA-A withdrawal. Benzos, alpha-2 agonists, barbiturates, likely that multimodal therapies targeting multiple channels are going to be needed to manage withdrawal. And there's a ton of questions that remain unanswered. What's the role of baclofen? Who can be managed outpatient versus inpatient? How do we even grade severity? what other drugs should we be using? For now, if you do encounter a patient who needs help from but toxicity or withdrawal, I'd strongly encourage consultation with somebody who's managed the toxicity or withdrawal before. Right now, that's usually people that work at a poison center. You can reach 24-hour toxicology consultation services for the public and healthcare providers at 1-800-222-1222. Okay, that'll wrap it up for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks for taking part in this public health messaging. I hope you can spread the word. If you appreciate what you learned today, go ahead and give the show a rating or leave a comment. It helps us reach other people who are interested in learning about emerging substances and toxicology. As always, you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can follow the show on social media, at LabPoison. For Twitter, you can follow myself at EM EMPoisonPharmD. You can follow our Instagram at Talks underscore talk. And we have a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. Lastly, don't forget to listen for future episodes. We'll be posting teasers to a potential toxic exposure. And if you want to write in to be a part of the show and have your differentials read on air so other people can learn, write your guess in to toxtalk1 at gmail.com. T-O-X-T-A-L-K-1 at gmail.com. That'll do it for today. I really appreciate you listening, and I hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxa, can you play us out?
3: The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employees. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.